Hey there, my name is Sean, and this is Grit True Stories That Matter. Grit is a weekly podcast, among other things, about stories, the contemporary personal narrative kind of stories, and the people that craft and tell them. Why, you ask? Well, we want to feature these tellers and their stories, and also to help you, our listeners, craft and tell better, more engaging, more relatable, and more memorable stories. True stories. Personal stories. Grit stories. We are nearing the end of season number three, dedicated to grit talks and the best of... And today we have got two stories from 7 by 7 back in March of 2021. The first is by Tracy Starin. Tracy lives up in Queens, New York, a fine borough where this bald guy was born. And the second is by Joanne Pelletier. Joanne lives up in Montreal, Quebec. And I actually had the privilege of meeting them both in person for the first time last week. Both lovely human beings, and I hope you enjoy their stories. Check the show notes for upcoming events, including the Mental Health Happyish Hour open mic and the 99-second story Grand Slam. That is season number six. Both of them are virtual. They are Sunday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern. Join us. They are a lot of fun. I promise you will have a good time. And before we dive in, a special thanks to everybody who listens. I really appreciate it. And to everyone who has contributed to this podcast since we launched in October of 2020. That includes Kurt Mullen. Thank you, Kurt. To all the women's storytellers of season number two. And to everybody who has participated or contributed to this season in our Grit Talks. And allowing me to use their stories from Best of 7x7 and the Mental Health Happiest Hour. Deja True and the 99 Second Story Slam. Thank you to The Swap Shop for ongoing support. Steph Rogers, Adi Surendran, Mary Jo Pollock, and of course the Queen, Mary Dalva up in Boston. Thank you all very much. I do really appreciate it. And now, Tracy and Joanne, let us dive in. So I was sitting on the floor of my tiny basement studio apartment in Boston, feeling as low as I had ever been figuratively and literally. I had just quit my job. I dropped out of college and I'd just been broken up with. And I had never felt more alone. I moved through my days like I was swimming through molasses, slow and with incredible difficulty and just feeling stuck. I never wanted to go out anymore. I didn't want to see my friends. I didn't even want to talk on the phone. It was winter and it was cold and it was dark most of the time. And so I spent a lot of time just huddled under blankets in my apartment watching television. I hardly ever left my apartment. When I did, it was to go to the convenience store across the street in the middle of the night when I needed something. And I went in the middle of the night because that gave me the least chance of running into somebody I knew so that they wouldn't have to ask me about that desperate look that they start to see in my eye. They would put their hands on my arm and say to me, are you okay? Because they could see that I wasn't. I was awash in waves of depression and anxiety. And I wasn't even at a point where I was trying to find a way out. I was just trying to get to the end of each day. I stayed up all night and I slept all day. And around this time, A friend of mine was also going through some personal upheaval. She had to move abruptly and she asked if she could keep her bunny, her pet bunny in my apartment until she found a more stable living, a living situation. And I really didn't, wasn't interested in that because I didn't want to take care of another living thing. I could barely take care of myself, but she assured me that she would come every day to give him fresh food and water and clean the cage. 
And I wasn't that interested in that either because I didn't want a daily visitor to see how my apartment was disintegrating and how I was disintegrating too. But she was stuck. And so I agreed. And for the first few days, for the, in the beginning, she did come every day to take care of him. And she did it with as little fuss as possible. And so I was able to ignore her mostly and ignore the bunny. Even though every time I walked past his cage, he would look at me with big, needy eyes that I refused to meet. But then after a little while, she started to miss days and she would call me and say, do me a favor, just throw a handful of food in there and give him fresh water until I can get there. And I would do that. And the bunny would thrust his nose through the bars of the cage looking for some kind of attention. And I would continue to ignore him because the desperation that he seemed to be feeling made me uncomfortable because it was starting to mirror my desperation and my loneliness. And then her visits started to get less frequent. Now, if you're not that familiar with bunnies as pets, you might think that they're in the category of hamsters or gerbils, but they're more in the category of cats and dogs. They learn and respond to their name. They form deep bonds with their people. They have to be let out every day for exercise. And if they're not handled and given attention and affection regularly, they get anxious and frantic and upset, and it can affect their health negatively. And the bunny's cage started to get really dirty. And when I would walk past, he would throw himself up against the bars and gnaw on them to make as much noise as possible. And I continued trying to ignore him because I couldn't face the desperate situation he was living in. His physical condition seemed to worsen as the environment in his cage seemed to worsen, which was exactly the situation I was in. As my depression seemed to worsen, my apartment seemed to be falling apart around me. And then after a little while, the bunny stopped making noise. He would just look at me with big hollow eyes and he kind of got thin and dirty and he looked really sad and alone. My friends had gotten tired of me ignoring them or lying to them and saying, I'm fine, I'm fine, everything is fine. And my phone had gone quiet. Nobody was calling anymore. And this one night I had come completely unglued and I didn't really have anybody left to call. And so I was sitting on the floor of my apartment wondering how I was going to get through this long night that stretched ahead of me all by myself. And I looked across the floor at the bunny cage and he sat in there all by himself. And I thought, no one's coming for us. It's just you and me. And then it occurred to me, I can help him. And I picked him up out of the cage and I put him in the tub and I gave him a bath. And I wrapped him up in a big fluffy towel and I poured him a fresh bowl of food and I made myself something to eat. And we sat at the coffee table and had dinner together. And then he sat on my, on my lap while he dried and we watched a movie together. And over the course of the night, I let him run around the apartment, but I didn't want him to get hurt on any of the garbage I had laying around. So I started to pick things up. And over the course of what was a very long night, I picked up a lot of the apartment. It wasn't clean enough that my mom would have been happy, but it was clean enough that I wouldn't be embarrassed for somebody to come in. And he started to come when I held out my hands and would eat food right from my fingers. And when the sun came up, I put him back in his clean cage. I cleaned and scrubbed out his cage, put him back in his new clean cage. And I went to sleep, having gone through the long, long night. And when I woke up, it was still daylight. And I got dressed and I took the train to the pet store and I got him food and a new water bottle and a new food dish. 
And I put them all in his, his freshly laid out cage when I came home. And when my friend called to say that she would be there at some point, if I could just hang on a little longer, I told her, don't worry about it. He's mine now. We need each other. And she said, okay. And she seemed to understand and she was all right with it. And the bunny lived with me for the rest of his life. Taking care of that bunny didn't make things all better immediately, for sure. But it got me through one of my worst nights. And it made me see that it was important to take care of the bunny. And it was important to take care of myself. And if I hadn't decided to step in that one night, I'm not sure what would have happened to him or what would have happened to me. Thank you. I'm in New York City visiting my Auntie Kay, my mom's older sister. We're going to go to Times Square and 42nd Street. We're going to see a show and go shopping. While we're on the subway, Kay leans over to my ear and she tells me about pimps, prostitutes, and peep shows. She says, you're going to walk right by it on 42nd Street. You just keep your eyes looking straight forward, kid. It's my first trip to New York City. It's the early 1970s. I'm 10. My Auntie Kay was born in Canada, but she found love and a new life in New York City. She was beautiful, but the thing is, to my young eyes, she was this exotic blast of ultra-outrageous femininity. She pushed the limits. Her outfits were so bold, alternating between 70s psychedelic caftans and the thinnest of pencil skirts. Her hair was impossibly big and perfect. She wore perfume and makeup and high heels all the time, even in New York. She was maximum girly. And all her friends told me she looked just like a New Yorker, like Elizabeth Taylor going to a Warhol show, but like every single day. Kay's kind of girly wasn't my thing, but she fascinated me. She was so bold and confident. On that first trip, she bought us matching uh, multicolored caftan outfits that were belted with big round sunglasses. I think the project was to try to make me more girly, just like her, but it didn't work. I was 10. I hated the caftan. I wanted to wear sneakers and jeans, but I wore the caftan anyway, because it was K, because it was New York. And on the subway, going from her home in Queens to the city in Manhattan, she shared with me her life lessons, her lessons about being a woman. She said, being a woman is complicated, kid. It takes a lot of hard work and there's a lot of girl ought to know. And so the New York subway, at least when the lights were on, became my classroom. Lesson one. A young woman should always remove one accessory before leaving the house. Never be too matchy-matchy. She would point out with no subtlety on the subway who got it right and wrong. Lesson two, young women must always be wary of men making time. This was an expression from her childhood. Making time meant unwanted attention from men. She said, you've got to learn to spot it and avoid it, kid, if you don't want it. And the third thing, it was more an observation than a lesson. She told me men watched women all the time. 
on the subway, when she saw it happening, she would touch her nose as a signal to me and then roll her eyes in the direction of the man and then the woman he was watching. She said it bothered her because men didn't watch her the way they had when she was younger. She said, as women get older, we get invisible. She said, it just happens. Past a certain age, the bastards don't see you. Nobody sees you. I didn't really understand this. I was 10. I said, ooh, why would you want that kind of attention? And she said, in time, kid, in time. Well, in time, I got it. The rush of a reciprocal gaze, the power of attraction between two people. I understood it, obviously, that beautiful boy, a first love. Our eyes met over a poker game and it was like an electrical storm. That woman across the pool in Las Vegas, she sent me a drink when our eyes met. Yeah, I got it. And the ick and the weird, when it wasn't reciprocated, when it was creepy, I got that too. And the making time thing, yeah, I figured that one out. But feeling invisible, I didn't really feel invisible. But somewhere past my 40s, I noticed something changed, something in who watches whom. Yeah, I started to notice it. And it never really bothered me as much as it bothered Kay until that day on the New York subway where there it was. Kay's life lessons come rushing back to me when I see it live right in front of me. A man my age, 50s very keenly watching a woman in her 20s. There he is, a man seated right across the aisle from me. The woman is seated right in front of me. She's staring at her phone, master of the digital universe. Their eyes don't meet. We three are alone in the car. I see him watching her. I'm fascinated. I feel Kay with me. She touches her nose. She rolls her eyes. I smile. I go back to my phone, but I can't. I can't not look. Something wakes up in me, Kay, me, what's happening right now. And I want to look more. I'm subtle at first. I look carefully at him and her and I observe them. Two subway stops. He hasn't blinked once. He's fixated on her. I get bolder. I look squarely at him and now at her and back at him. They don't look up at me. Do they even see me? No one else is on the car. Am I invisible? I go further. I exaggerate my head movements now, back and forth and back and forth between them. And it's super weird. And I don't know what my end game is here, but here's the thing. I want him to feel embarrassed and caught. I want her to wake up, look up, do something. Tell him to stop. Tell me to stop. <laughs> but it's not about them. It's me. This is what came meant. Being invisible, it's being witness to the thing that I was once the object of. He doesn't see me. He only sees her, and I don't want her attention. I don't want his, but right now, I feel invisible. I look over at him, and I feel a bit sorry for him. He's trapped in his male gaze. It's all he taught. He was taught to do. But no, actually, I don't feel sorry for him. I'm advocating for her, and I look over at her, and... She doesn't need my help. She's still staring at her phone, master of the digital universe. She's doing exactly what I did before. What I do now, I would just ignore it. And I stare at her even longer now. She's, she's so beautiful. 
Long-legged and blonde and perfect hair and makeup, the outfit. Kay would have said this was fantastic, by the way. And I'm staring at her so long, I stop short of objectifying her. And I, it's very uncomfortable. And I think I'm no better than he is. It's like the first time we've both seen 20. It's so beautiful. She suddenly gets up and she's going to get off the train. And I quickly turn to him and he looks at his newspaper. She's long gone. I leave my eyes on him longer, like thinking, I got you, buddy. I see you. I never got to maximum girly like Kay would have wanted. I found my own version of being a girl. Being a woman is still sometimes complicated. The life lessons stayed with me, and it's not about accessories or men making time with me anymore. But the invisible thing, she had something there. Because aging... It means seeing things differently, and it means being seen differently. I know that now, and I bet I'm going to know a lot more in time, in time. But for now, I touch my nose. I get off at the next stop. Thank you. As always, thanks so much for listening and all your support. Special thanks to Tracy and Joanne for crafting and telling and sharing these stories with the Grit Podcast. Thank you, ladies. As always, check the show notes for upcoming events, including the Mental Health Happyish Hour Open Mic, as well as the 99 Second Story Grand Slam Season Number Six. That is on July 17th. Those are on Sundays. They are at 8 p.m. Eastern, both of them. I hope you can join us. They are a lot of fun. And that is all for episode number 90. Boom.